We're in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, we're continuing our study through the book of Romans. By the way, if you're willing and able to help in our Sunday school classes, we desperately need your help. And uh, you can speak to Ambika or Bob Murata about that, and uh, they'll be able to direct you in the right direction. don't have to be a teacher. You can just be a helper, someone that helps uh, assist the teacher. So, good opportunity to serve. But today I want to speak to you a little bit about the danger of false assurance. False assurance. A lot of times... As believers, we talk a lot about our assurance in Christ. We sang this morning in Christ alone. And we know uh, without a doubt that the work of Christ can save, can change, can transform the human heart. We've, most of us here have experienced that to some degree and continue to experience it as an everyday event in our Christian lives as we are more sanctified, as we grow closer to the image of of Christ as he works in and through the trials that he brings into our lives and the people and circumstances. Um, But as we've been looking through Romans chapter 2, we come to understand that we have a God who is, carries out, I should say, righteous judgment. And we've been looking at that over the last five weeks, God's righteous judgment. And we understand from those studies that God clearly judges men. He judges men because of their sin. And that judgment is not based on how you perform or what you wear or what you look like. It's based on the condition of your heart. It's based on what you do with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One day you will stand before God and He will ask you that question. It will become evident. He won't even have to ask the question, actually. He'll know. But Back in Romans chapter 1, verse 32, just to remind you, even those who haven't heard of Christ are still under God's righteous judgment. It says in verse 32 of Romans 1, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to them who practice them. And this is speaking of those unbelievers who are willing to continue in a life of sin, even though their minds are given over to a reprobate mind, they still comprehend it. They understand one day they will be judged for their sins. And one commentator points out with the assurity of that judgment comes kind of an anxiety on our part, doesn't it? How many of you love to take tests? You just love it. Just look forward to it. Not many people. There's some people that do because they're very intelligent people and they get all the answers right and it's a no-brainer for them. But for us that struggle a little bit in the intellectual realm, um, taking a test a lot of times really puts fear in your heart. I've talked to people over the years that um, when I was in school and even after school we've been reviewing for a test or something we were going through, some kind of exam, And, boy, we knew it all in the classroom. We could recite the verses or we could recite the quotations or we knew the addresses. Everything that we needed to know, whether it was for schooling or a job, we knew. But then when we came in and we had to sit down and we had to take a test, 
all of a sudden, what happens? Your mind just goes blank. You're filled with fear. You're thinking, oh, man. And you start, the pages just begin to, the words on the page just become kind of a blur. Even though you know the material, that fear is there. And a lot of times people have to cope with that kind of fear of being examined. One day we will all stand before God and we will be examined. And our conscience tells us that. We all have a sense of right and wrong. We all understand that, you know what, when we do something wrong, we're guilty. We understand that clearly. It's in our makeup. It's in our DNA. It's how God has created us to be. And so when we have the potential of standing before God one day and being judged on the basis of our deeds as believers, there's a little bit of anxiety there. And to deal with that anxiety, a lot of people come up with what I call false assurances. They come up with ways to deal with that kind of anxiety. And Paul, in Romans chapter 2, he kind of exposes some of those in verses 17 to 29, the end of the chapter. He begins to destroy all the false assurances that, in this context, the Jews had about themselves. But I think when he does that, he also addresses some of the false assurances that we have as Christians, even, by way of application. Now remember, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul already basically talked to all the pagans. He talked to those who were not religious in any way. And he brought them under the judgment of God because of their sin. We've gone through that. In Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, he begins to address the people who are kind of moral. They're maybe a little bit religious. They go to church, you know, maybe Christmas, Easter kind of a thing. And they're, they're moral people. And some of the Jews were included in that group, but not all of them. Well, now in, in Romans chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, Paul says, okay, I'm not done yet. I'm still going to let you know who else falls under the judgment of God. And here he addresses specifically the covenant people of God, the Jews. He does it very exactly. And we can today apply that to us as religious people. We all know religious people. You may even claim to be religious. People always ask me, well, you're a pastor, you must be pretty religious. I say, no, don't put me in that camp. I don't want to be known as a religious person. And you go on and you explain to them it's all about a relationship. It's not about a religion. Religion is something that man has created to kind of, in their feeble attempt to reach out to a holy God so that God would somehow embrace man. Any world religion is that way. It's based on works. It's based on what you do. Remember, you're going to hear some explosions and gunfire probably. Next door, they're having an exercise, so don't be alarmed by that. But he catches everybody here, and in, in chapter Two here, he at the end he begins to address the religious Jew. No one escapes Paul's assessment of God's judgment. The pagans, the, the moral people, and even the religious religious people come under God's judgment. 
And they're all told the same thing. They're all told, you know what, we're all sinners. We all need the forgiveness of a holy God. And there's only one way to get that, and that is through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. No one escapes that message. Just because you say, well, I don't believe that, it doesn't change it. So here in verses 17 to 29, Paul deals with the people who really had the most given to them. They were entrusted with the most privileges being God's chosen people. So let me read the text for us, and you can follow along in your Bibles. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17, and then we'll look at some of these privileges that the Jews had. He says in verse 17, Paul does, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, look at this, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jews here. For circumcision, for, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so Paul here directly and very boldly, I might say, addresses the religious Jews of his day. These were the Jews who were the enemies of Christ. These were the Jews who wanted him executed and did everything within their power to do it. Now, you might say, boy, Paul's being a little rough here. Um, But you know what? When someone is in a situation where they're being either taken advantage of or they're believing a lie, it's the right thing to tell them the truth. Wouldn't you agree? If I go rock climbing and I have somebody on the end of a rope and I know that rope isn't going to hold them, it would be kind of me to say, hey, you need to get off this rope. It's not going to hold you. It would be unkind to just say, well, you know what? I'm just going to let him dangle there and hopefully it'll hold because I don't want to hurt his feelings. I don't want to tell him how to do his climbing. 
It's, a, it's an act of kindness. And we have to remind ourselves of that today in the church because so much that goes on within the church kind of flies under the bridge and everybody says, well, you know, we don't want to say anything. We don't want to offend anybody. We want to throw a wide net so we kind of include all everybody. And, and, and that's very dangerous. Because when you're including everybody, you're including truth, you're including error. And so we have to remind ourselves that we have to point out certain false assurances or certain issues that people may have in their faith. And some people say, well, that's being judgmental. There's nothing wrong with being judgmental if it's done with the right attitude, if it's done with the right motivation. If you're a religious, self-righteous, judgmental person and you're just looking down your long spiritual nose at everybody else, then that's not right. That's wrong and that will be, that is condemned in Scripture and that will be judged one day. But if you're looking at what someone believes or where, how someone lives and you're in all honesty really concerned about that person and you feel you have to say something, by all means say it. Say it in love. Say it in kindness. You're doing them a favor. You're not doing them a favor if you just turn a blind eye and say, I'm not going to get involved. No, no. Because the body of Christ is called to come together, to be unified. But when we do that, certain things become evident. Basically, that we're not perfect people. I think it's Chuck Swindoll says, the body of Christ is like a pack of porcupines. The closer they get, you know, to stay warm, they start poking each other. And they've got to move further apart. But you do a tremendous favor when you tell someone that their assurance or their security is insecurity. I've talked to people sometimes and you ask them about their faith. Oh, I'm a Christian. Really? You're a Christian? Yeah. Where where do you fellowship at? It's usually the first question I ask. Fellowship? Well, where do you go to church at? Oh, well, um, well, I'm I'm Methodist or I'm Catholic or I'm Baptist. Okay. (laughs) Where do you go to church at? Because that's not the question I asked. Where do you go to church? Oh, well, you know, my dad, my mom and dad go to this church. And so, you know, um, well, actually, I haven't been there a long time. So what are they telling you? Well, I'm Christian in name only. It doesn't take very long to understand that their, their faith is waning when it comes to legitimate Christianity. Are they a follower of Christ or not? They're trusting in something that I would call is a false assurance. And so Paul here in the text is very... Honest, he's very forthright, he's very direct. Because he's very uh, indicting of the Jews. Now remember, Paul once was a Jew, right? So he understands exactly where these people are coming from. And he understands their, in their Judaism, they had certain privileges. They had certain rights. God showed them favor in certain areas. And the first area was that they were part of the nation of Israel. That's one of the first privileges that they had. They were part of the nation of Israel. If you don't believe me, just, if you're not Jewish, go to Israel and you'll realize you don't have certain privileges that Israelis do. Now, today it's not so much a faith-based thing, it's more of a nationality kind of a thing. But back then it was, hey, we're part of the the, the nation of Israel. We are somebody. And they, they felt that that was a certain kind of assurance. Second thing is they possessed the law of God. 
Don't ever forget that God gave the law to who? The Jews. He gave it to his people. And he gave it to them for the purpose not of hoarding it. He didn't give it to them so they could go to their temple and not let anybody else see it. He gave it to them so that they could study it and they could make the truth of God known to other people, even to the Gentiles. That's what was supposed to happen. But when God's people felt a little privileged, hey, we're part of God's group. And look at he's given us this law. They forgot that they were supposed to take the law of God and distribute it and be caretakers of it. They took it and they applied it to themselves. And they looked at it and they said, how can we make ourselves look more spiritual by applying God's word to our own life? That's where you get all the, the traditional laws of Judaism that aren't even found in God's law. Oh, on the Sabbath, if you pick up a stick that weighs so much and is so much longer than this, then, then you're breaking the Sabbath. But if, you, you know, if it's under that weight, then that's okay. That's not there. They make all this stuff up. And they do so because they found out that they can't keep God's original law. It's impossible. And that goes back to the purpose God gave them the law in the first place. The same reason he gave us the law in the first place was to show us our need of what? A Savior. God did not give us His law to say, here, if you keep this, I'm going to like you a whole lot better than if you don't. That's not why He gave it to us. That's what's in our mind. You know, when, when we see laws, when we see on Jefferson, it says 30 or 35 or whatever it is, we know that that's a law. If we break the law, we'll probably get a ticket. But that's something we could do. That's within our means of doing. But when you look at God's law and you look at all the laws, not just the ten, but all of them, it's, it's just impossible. Even the ten we can't even keep. Most Christians don't even, can't even recite the ten commandments, let alone keep them. So it's important to understand that with this entrustment as this nation of Israel, God gave them the law. And then the last thing was that he required the men to be circumcised. And that was their sign that they were basically his special people. And so when you look at those three things, those are three things that the Jews basically held up and they based their goodness, their spirituality on being part of the nation of Israel based on having the law and based on the sign of circumcision. And so when they looked at that, they thought, hey, this makes us secure. We're part of this group. Nobody else has this. And they started to put their assurance in something that wasn't meant to give them assurance. It was meant to give them just the opposite. It was meant to give them a need of a Savior. And so they began to believe because they were Jews, because they possessed the law, because they had a symbol of the sign of circumcision, that therefore, oh, God's judgment? We don't have to worry about that. We're God's chosen people. And Paul basically is saying, no, that's not true. There's something more. Hope he doesn't land on our roof. And so here in verse 17, Paul begins to take some of these assurances and he kind of just basically systematically destroys them. 
He basically points out to them, no, this isn't going to happen this way. You have a false assurance. You have a false assurance. And he basically deals out blow after blow at their security of being Jewish. And by way of application, we can say the same thing. There's a lot of people today that are so-called Christians. They call themselves Christians. They're religious people. They're in the church today. But when you begin to dialogue with them and you begin to talk with them, you begin to realize, well, their, their faith is not a faith of the Bible. I don't know what kind of faith it is, but it's not a saving faith. And so, hopefully, as we work our way through this, it'll take a couple weeks, this text, we'll look at the couple, first couple verses today. As we work our way through this text, I hope that you understand not only the text, but how it applies to us today as believers in a contemporary setting such as the church. And so Paul here, moved by the Holy Spirit, begins to write in verse 17, and he says, But if you call yourself, look at what he says, a Jew... He really just kind of takes the knife and zeroes right in. This was something that they hid behind. Their ancestry. Well, I'm Jewish. Even to this day, when you talk to someone of the Jewish faith, there's a certain pride in being Jewish. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, right? I mean, we should be, you know, prideful in a sense that we're Christian. We shouldn't be ashamed of that. But I mean prideful in a, a good way, not a sinful way. They were prideful in a sinful way. They looked at their religion as something that somehow protected them from God's judgment. And so he says, you call yourself a Jew. And he basically wants them to understand that from this point on, I, I got you in my gun sights. I'm, I, I got you right there. I'm zeroing in on the, the people of the Jewish faith. And he knew that because they had a lot of false assurances. When you stop and think of it, Christians have a lot of false assurances. There's some believers that believe that, well, if you were to ask them, um, why do you have the right to enter heaven? A lot of people say, well, you know, I go to church. Or, you know, I'm good to my family, I provide for my family, I do this, I do that. They start to list off good deeds. Or, hey, I've never murdered anybody, I'm an American, I'm a pretty good person. Right there, that tells you, well, they got a, they got a miscommunication uh, as far as what biblical saving faith is. And they put up a wall, they put up a wall of good deeds, or they put up a wall of good morals, or, or religiosity, or whatever it might be. And the Jews were no different. And so they began to raise these, these walls up with Paul. And Paul here in this text just rips them all down. And so it's important that we see where he's coming from. Now, this isn't the first time that the Jews heard this. We know that because um, even back in when, when Jesus, uh, before Paul, was dealing with them... Uh, when Jesus arrived on the scene of Judaism back in Matthew, the first time he gave a sermon, when you look at chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, he basically spends that entire time tearing down walls of Judaism, one after the other. 
In chapter 5, verse 20, he says of Matthew, he says, your righteousness is not adequate to get you into the kingdom of God. (laughs) He's talking to the religious leaders. And then he begins to list off, you know what, your attitudes are wrong, your view of scripture is wrong, your human relationships are wrong, your words are inadequate, your praying doesn't cut it, your fasting is wrong, your giving doesn't cut it. And he does that all through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And Jesus basically strips down Judaism to nothing. There's nothing left. And then he goes on and he shares how they can have eternal life. See, that's what we have to do when we present the gospel to somebody. We have to understand that someone's not going to have an ear to listen to the gospel if they don't have a need for the gospel. And this was really proven true throughout the the 70s and the 80s with the whole Jesus movement and everything else that followed when people were running around telling everybody, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. That's the first thing that you tell somebody. Well, that may be true, that may not, (laughs) right? Depending on what you do with his son, spending eternity in hell doesn't sound like a wonderful plan to me. And what it did is it it opened up a conversation, and then basically it was up to you to kind of lead them to the point of making a decision for Christ. And how did you do that? You would dangle little things in front of their their nose. Well, there's such a place as heaven. Jesus wants to forgive all your sin. Jesus wants to do this. Oh, you'll be great. All this stuff. And you list all these great things that Jesus is going to do for you. The only problem with that is some people are secure in what they're living Even though they're pagans, they have more money than we could ever dream of. They live in the nicest house on the block. They have five cars, not just one. They have a beautiful family with kids. And and they're saying, what do I need this for? See, they don't understand. And so you have to bypass all that and cut right to the chase and begin to show people that, wait a minute, the reason that you need a Savior is because you're a sinner. You don't start the presentation of the gospel off with Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. You start the presentation of the gospel off by taking the law of God and presenting it to people. So you think you're going to get in heaven one day because you're good? And you go through the commandments. Have you ever told a lie? Well, who hasn't? Okay, that's my point. Doesn't sound like a good person. Have you ever taken anything irrespective of its value? Well, when I was younger, okay. So you're a lying, stealing. I mean, should we stop or should we continue? And you're calling yourself a good person? What are you doing when you do that? When you do that, you're, you're bypassing this wall that they put up and you're cutting right to the chase. You're showing them their need of a Savior. I mean, you go through three or four of the commandments and their answer, if they're honest, is going to say, yeah, I haven't kept that one either, sorry. By the fourth or fifth one, they're they're not feeling too good about themselves. They begin to understand, no, I I guess you're right. When I stand before God one day, I can't just say, oh, I've been a good person, because you clearly, by my own words, have shown me that I haven't been. So sometimes we take people down this rosy path of the gospel, and we lead this person to a place where they have all this assurance, and they pray a prayer, and put their faith in Christ, and boy, then we send them off, and don't ever question this now, you know, and, and, and just, you know, welcome to the family. There's even tracks that have a little prayer in it, and you're encouraged to tell that person to pray this prayer, and if they're kind of shy about it, then you can pray it, and they can repeat the words somehow that maybe by that 
transmission of the words that somehow they're converted. I've never, in the Bible, I've, I've never seen Jesus grab someone and said, hey, you know, <laughs> you got to pray this prayer. If you pray this prayer, then you're one of my followers. He never did that, ever. You can't find it in Scripture. But we have this thing, the sinner's prayer that we use. I'm not saying it doesn't work. If God's going to convert a heart, he can convert a heart however he does. But I don't think it's a biblical way to present the gospel. So we're not surprised that Paul would do this. Because if his words seem harsh to you, I mean, it it seems kind of harsh. Oh, you call yourself a Jew? That's kind of the, the mentality here that Paul is sharing this truth with them. Remember... Before Paul took the, the job with Jesus, he was a Jew. <laughs> he was a Jewish Pharisee. So Paul literally was the person that he's speaking to and speaking against in the text. And sometimes that gives you a little bit of pull, doesn't it? When you've been through something. I really believe that's why God brings trials into our lives. So as we grow more mature in our faith, we can look back and say, wow, God brought me through that trial. He brought me through that trial. So when we run into younger believers who haven't been through that trial yet, we can console them. We can say, hey, look, I know what it's like. I've been there, done that. God's faithful. He'll get you through it. Hang in there. If you never experience anything, if you never experience any trials, how are you going to console someone who's going through a trial? And so Paul was this person who he's speaking against here. And so he has the the moral people in the the first 16 verses, and their security is their self-righteousness and their religiosity. And now he comes to the the Jew, and basically they're trusting in their ancestry. They possess the law of God. They possess God's covenant people. They possess circumcision, and they're trusting in all those things. And what Jesus wants them to understand, and he does this in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 at the end, he basically points out to them, hey, there's going to be a lot of people who come before me and say, Lord, Lord, isn't this great? We've done all this stuff in your name. And what is he going to say to them? Depart. I never knew you. Not that I knew you once and you fell away. No, he says, I never knew you. I have no evidence that you have an ongoing love relationship with me. And so their assurances and their securities will be shattered. Now, you notice that he says they're a Jew. And there's a lot of different ways that you can address someone who is of the, 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 the Jewish faith. You could call them a Hebrew. Word of God does that. That refers to their language. That identifies them by their language. You could call them an Israelite. What's that? That basically indicates their land, where they're from, the land of Israel, that's usually what people of the Jewish faith want to be called today, an Israelite, an Israeli. That's how you address them. If you ever listen to politicians, they never say, oh, yeah, Netanyahu, he's a Jew. No, they say he's he's Israeli. It's just more politically correct. But then there's also the word Jew, and that indicates their nationality. And see, that was the point of their particular point of pride. They had pride in their language. If you've ever studied 
the, the Hebrew language, they, they have a right to have pride in their language. It's a very difficult language. If you know Hebrew, that's great. The word Hebrew basically indicates their language, and Israeli indicates their land. Jew indicates their nationality, their ancestry. It first appeared back in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 6, the word Jew. And it became frequently used as an address for God's people, both during and after the time of exile. And so the term Jew spoke of their ancestry or their nationality. And what that meant was they were different than anybody else. When the Jews were in the land, that was special, because everybody else wasn't Jewish. They weren't God's chosen people. And even today, God has marked out Jews as his chosen people. Does that mean all Jews are going to be saved? No. But it means in the realm of God's plan, they are his particularly chosen people. Why? I don't know. (laughs) For the same reason you don't know why God chose you or God chose me. You can't give me a good reason. I can't give myself a good reason. I have the slightest idea. Why did God save me? It's his choice, his grace. Definitely wasn't because they were always going to be obedient, because they weren't. And so it really marked out the uniqueness of a, of a Jew. They were different than anybody else. They were different than the Gentiles. Back then, you had Gentiles and you had the Jews. That was it. You were one or the other. And it became a title of honor. Um, even in the Old Testament, Mordecai says, I am a Jew. And he says so with a certain amount of pride. Not a bad kind of pride. There's nothing wrong with that. But see, in Jesus' time and in Paul's time, that I am a Jew kind of became, I am a Jew. (laughs) You poor people. I'm so much better than you because you're not Jew. I'm a Jew. So there was a sense of pride. There was a sense of boasting. There was a sense of superiority. The idea that they were better than everybody else because they were a Jew. Sometimes I run into Christians that have that same kind of mentality. Well, I'm Christian. That makes me better than everybody, all the pagans out there in the world. Oh, I'm I'm so much better than them. I'm a Christian. Better watch it. God has a way of helping us understand our frailty in life. You say, well, shouldn't we be proud that we're a Christian? Sure we should. But it's all in the attitude. When you say, man, I'm a Christian... I just can't believe that God has been so gracious to me. That God has opened my eyes to help me understand the truth. What a wonderful thing. There's nothing wrong with that kind of a bragging on the Lord or boasting in the Lord. Paul himself said, I will glory in him. There's nothing wrong with that. That word boast there in our text verse 17, and rely on the law and boast in God. It's used a lot by Paul. It's used over and over. Sometimes it's used for God-centered boasting, which is good. Sometimes it's used for man-centered boasting, which is bad. 
And here, obviously, it's dealing with the self-confidence, the self-righteousness of these Jews. They were basically boasting in themselves because they thought somehow that God owes them something. Because after all, we're his people. He gave us his law. We're of the circumcised. We're not like those Gentiles. Come on, Paul. I mean, I understand God's going to judge. You can just hear in Paul's words as he's working his way through chapter 1, talking about the pagans and how God is going to judge them. And probably the people that used to stand next to Paul when he was a Pharisee would say, yeah, that's right, Paul, you tell them. Those pagans, man, they're going to hell. Those Gentiles, they're, they're not good people. And then he kind of works his way into chapter 2, and he begins to talk about the kind of the religious people who are kind of moral. And you almost feel some of the Jews kind of pulling away from Paul. Yeah, you're getting a little close here, pal. What are you doing? This is speaking to our heart a little more. And then in verse 17, he says, you know, you call yourself a Jew, and you boast in God. All you're boasting in is yourself. They were bragging about the relationship with God. They thought they were so, so special that God had to favor them no matter what. So for the Gentiles and the pagans, yeah, they're going to meet their maker one day and they're going to be in a lot of trouble because they've been doing a lot of bad things, Paul. But us, man, we're good people. We're we're Jews. So when you talk about the judgment of God, Paul, I understand you're talking about the Gentiles. You're not talking about us. No, he says, if you call yourself a Jew... Zeroes right in on their self-confident boasting. Back in Micah chapter 3, verse 11, it talks about leaders who are being judged for rewards. And it talks about how they were bribing and and the priests were uh, teaching for money and they were divining for money. All these things were happening. And they literally corrupted the whole system that God had set up. Um, and their attitude was this. It says, Is not the Lord among us? These are the people who are basically cheating God. No evil shall come upon us. See, that's like the Jews saying, Well, Paul, I understand these, these people are going to get judged, but you know, we, we may not be doing everything right, but we're, we're Jewish. We're not going to be judged by God. Wake up, pal. We're, we're his people. We're on the right side. We win in the end. See, that's not too far from where I find some Christians finding themselves today in the church. They begin to kind of just relax in the armchairs of grace. Well, you know, I know I should be doing more, but, you know, I'm sure God, God will understand. I'm busy. Got a job, got a family, got this, got that. I'm sure that I just come in and punch the clock once a week. He's, he's cool with that. I mean, he's God. I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm his son. I'm his daughter. See, that was their attitude. And that's the attitude of too many people within the church. No evil will befall us. We're under his protection. And basically, that becomes... Worse and worse and worse. And finally, you hear people saying, well, you know, I mean, all my sins are forgiven anyway. 
So if I just go out a couple times a night and do some things that maybe, I'm sure if, if Jesus was right there with me, I wouldn't do those things or if people in the church were there. But, you know, I, I kind of have two lives. I'm, I have a life that is here in the church and I have a life that's outside the church. And, you know, hopefully the two never mix because, boy, two different people. They felt their security because they were children of Abraham. All the way back, Genesis chapter 12, it says, I'll bring up these people. They're, they're going to be the number, uh, number of the sand, stars of the heaven. I'm going to bless them. And anybody that curses them, I'm going to curse them. That's what God said about these people. That makes you feel kind of special. They were special. They're blessed. They're secure. They felt that they had monopolized God. That God was their God and their God alone. That's why a certain individual in the Old Testament had a problem. Remember? Hey, I want you to go tell these pagans about me. I want you to go tell them about salvation. I want you to tell them about grace. I want you to warn them. I can't do that, God. They're, they're not part of us. What did he do? He ran the other way, right? Sometimes we have a feeling of superiority, especially spiritual superiority. And we need to be reminded very frankly and and very honestly that, you know what, we're no better than the people outside these walls. We're no better. We're no better than the homeless guy that's wandering the streets of Redwood City. It smells, hasn't taken a bath in weeks. We're no better than the prostitute down on El Camino Real. See, we think somehow because we put on fancy clothes and we come to church and, and, and we hear about the grace of God and we have a Bible in our house and we raise our kids with a Christian mentality and, and all these things are good things, don't get me wrong, but somehow we think that, that God is going to like us more because of that. Beloved, the only reason God will like you at all is because of His grace. It's His grace. I mean, this is the same message, basically, that Paul had, that John shared. If you look over at Matthew chapter 3, look at Matthew chapter 3. This is just amazing what John shared, John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 3, and this is John the Baptist. He's the one that's the forerunner of Christ. He's preparing the way. He's the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. This was kind of a strange dude. He wore odd clothes, camel's hair. Ate locusts and honey. I've never had locusts and honey, but it just doesn't sound like a nice meal to me. Is that part of the paleo diet? I don't know, locusts and honey. Sounds like it should be. Look at what he says to verse 7. He says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who are these? These are the same people that Paul is addressing in Romans 2. The exact same people. Same group of people. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Oh, gee, this is nice. (laughs) You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Well, gee, I mean, that sounds like a real nice welcome. Verse 8, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not, what? Presume to say to yourselves... We have Abraham as our father. What's that? That's their ancestry. False assurance of their ancestry. 
For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, you're nothing. You're no different than this stone over here. You understand that? See, the minute we begin to, under, we begin to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. Well, I'm a Christian. I would ne- oh, I could never do, I could never do this. I, I would never do Be careful. Be careful. The Bible says, except by the grace of God, there go I. Be very careful. It's a false assurance. Don't presume upon yourselves. Then he says there in verse 10, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree therefore does not bear good fruit is cut down and what? Thrown into the fire. Wow. I mean, he addressed them pretty directly there. He didn't mince words. He says, don't you think you're okay just because Abraham was your father? There's another great illustration of this over in Romans chapter 8. This is a little longer one, but it drives the point home. Romans chapter 8. Or, excuse me, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 31. Once again, here's Jesus. What's he doing? He's confronting the Jews. And he says in verse 31, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So he makes the statement, the truth will make you free. The truth will set you free. Well, that immediately caused some consternation, some anger on their part. Why? Because he was taking a shot at their own security, their own false assurance. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, we don't know the truth? Is that what you're saying, Jesus? They were upset. And they answered, we are the offspring of who? Abraham. And have never been enslaved to anyone. How short of memory can they have? They've never been enslaved to anyone? I mean, that's just a ridiculous statement when you stop and look at it. At the very moment they're saying this, who are they in bondage to? Rome, right? They're in bondage to Rome. The Roman Empire, before that it was the Greeks. Before that it was the Medo-Persian Empire. Before that it was the Babylonians. And then the Egyptians. That's all they've known is, is enslavement. But they're so deceived in their own self righteousness they said, oh, we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say to us, you will become free? How dare you? Jesus answered them. He said, truly, most assuredly, in other words, listen up. I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You can just feel the hair on the back of their heads going up. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. He already knows that. He's not stupid. Yet you seek to kill me because of my words. They find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father. And you do, and, 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 and what you do, have heard from your father. And they answered him and said, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Ouch. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And you can kind of begin to puzzle. Wait a minute. He said he just said we're not of Abraham's father. Now he's saying that we did the works of our father. Then they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, Jesus says, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Let me tell you why. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Why? Because they have all these false assurances put up in front of them. Verse 44, right between the eyes, you are, your, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He is a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's a very, very strong indictment. So strong, they say, man, this guy's, this guy's demon-possessed. That's what the religious leaders answer. Well, you're just demon-possessed. You don't know what you're talking about, pal. You're crazy. You're possessed of a demon. Jesus says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the, there's the word, judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. <laughs> they really kind of doubled down on the demon thing here. And they, they point out, Abraham died. The other prophets died. If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. What are you talking about? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who died? Who do not... Who do you make yourself out to be? They finally ask him. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. 
Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? I mean, this guy really is demon-possessed. They're just thinking, well, this, this guy's nuts. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. What? You're, you're here standing before us, self-righteous religious people, and you're, you're calling us out? How dare you? Nobody's ever done this before. That's why in verse 59 it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus said, I'll be going now. See you later. And he went out of the temple. Incredible account of Jesus dealing with self-righteous religious people in his own words, in his own day. You go back to Romans chapter 2, and guess what? It's not far from what Paul is telling us in this text. He's doing the exact same thing. These Jews were clinging to this false security of their ancestry. And it had to be shown to them clearly. I mean, you say, well, how does that apply to us? We're not, probably most of us here are not Jews today. We don't have this false assurance, this false security. Maybe we're holding on to our own Christian ancestry. I mean, there's a lot of people that hold on to a Christian point of view or a Christian religion just because mom and dad were Christian. And it's not just Christians that do it, by the way. You go to any part of the world, whatever the religion is there, pretty much people are holding on to it because of their heritage or their ancestry. When we were over in India, a lot of times, if you struck up a a spiritual conversation with somebody, which was pretty easy to do because they're spiritual people. They weren't Muslim or Hindu. They were Christian. I mean, that's what they'd say. What kind of Christian? Who knows? But they just knew they weren't the other two, so they had to be Christian. See, a lot of times we base our Christianity on something that, that is false. Are we a Christian just because mom and dad were a Christian? You know, that's actually a belief that's going around in the church today. A lot of the covenant churches or a lot of even some of the reformed churches they believe that, you know what, because mom and dad are a Christian, somehow that passes on to the children, and that's why a lot of those churches will practice infant baptism. That's the reason. What else would there be? They believe somehow, they call it the family covenant, that somehow the salvation of a, of a child occurs because they're born to Christian parents. And there's people down throughout the, the ages of the church who believe this. Zwingli, a great reformer, took that position. He took the position that all children of believers who died in infancy were saved because they were born within the covenant. I would believe, and he didn't, he didn't hold that view for unbelievers. I would believe that God has a certain amount of grace on children, period. Whether they're part of a Christian family or not, it's irrelevant. I think there's some evidence in the Bible that in the Old Testament 
that when a child, a baby dies, it goes to be with the Lord somehow. I don't know how that works out, but I, I really believe that. Somehow in God's grace, he makes that happen. He would read Acts 2.39, and it says there, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so Zwingli would take that verse and misinterpret it and say, Well, see, right there it says that the children will kind of automatically be Christians. Because it says the promise is for you and your children. It's a misinterpretation, but that's what he believed. Even great Puritan Calvinist John Owen, who is is a wonderful theologian in so many ways. I mean, he expressed that infant salvation could even be passed down from the grandparents if the parents weren't Christians. Kind of wacky stuff, because it's not in the Bible. Somehow, if the parents weren't Christians of a child and the grandparents were, that somehow they were still part of the covenant and they would automatically be believers. See, all those misbeliefs, those, those, those wrong beliefs, basically, taking the false assurance of Judaism over Christianity. That's the reason why we have infant baptism. It's a, it's a replacement, basically, for circumcision in a lot of ways. I mean, I'd definitely rather be baptized and circumcised, but, you know, it has nothing to do with somebody's salvation. That's where we get mixed up. Even within the Roman Catholic Church, it's that way. It's a sacrament. What's a sacrament? It's something that earns the grace of God. So we see these things, and now how does this come down to the assurance of the religious man. And just real quickly here in verse 17, it shows us that they had assurance because they boasted in their lineage. Well, we're, we're Israeli. We're, we're Jewish. We're, and, that's, and that's what people do. Um, these people were all with Paul when he was talking about the pagans, but as soon as he started to talk about them, I'm sure they took a couple steps back. Look at your own heart. Look at yourself. Don't look at your parents. Don't look at your family. That's irrelevant. Where's your heart at in relationship with Christ? It doesn't matter whether your parents are Christians or not. I mean, hey, great blessings if they were, and they instilled some good things in you, and that's wonderful. But too many of your people are counting on their Christian lineage to make them a Christian, and that's not how it works. Every man will stand individually before God one day and will give an account. You're not going to stand there as a family. They boasted in their lineage. They also boasted in their law. We have the law of God. They kind of forgot the idea that they, they, they lost the whole idea why God gave them the law was to give to other people and to, to be a stewardship, steward of the law of God. No, they just hoarded it to themselves. Kind of rings true with us sometimes as believers when we're called to go out into the all the, the under uttermost parts of the world and share the gospel with those who've yet to hear. And what do we do? We come to our nice little cozy church. We sit here. We learn more about Christ, and then we go home. We turn on the TV and we learn more about Christ. And what do we do? Then we open up our devotion. We learn more about Christ. We never step out of our door because well, we don't want to go out in that cruel, cruel, sin-stained world. You know, it might get us dirty. God forbid. You better be careful. It's wonderful to have the Word of God, but what are you using it for? Are you using it just to grow fat spiritually? 
sit around, talk about spiritual things? Or are you using it for the reason which it was given to us, to go out into a lost and dying world and make an impact for Christ? That's why he left us here. See, this kind of Christian, though, they sing Christian songs, they, they sing Christian, they're listening to Christian sermons and read the, the Bible, the whole thing. You just better be careful. They also boasted of their Lord. It says there in eight, 17 and 18, it says they boast in God, and then they say they know His will and they prove what is excellence. Because they're instructed in the law. We have a special relationship with God because of all our religious activity that we do. That's what they believed. They were wrong, but that's what they believed. They believed somehow being religious was was good enough for God to like them more. Do you understand? I just pray you get this this morning, that you cannot please God. You cannot please God. No matter how good you get, you're never going to be good enough to please the Father. In Isaiah 64, 6, it says, We have all, all become like the one who is unclean, for all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Matthew five twenty. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never, ever enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, you can memorize every book in the Bible. You can memorize every verse in the Bible. And you can still go to hell. Just doing those things isn't guaranteeing you a place in heaven. The salvation experience is based on faith placed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It says, For with the heart one believes and one is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a gift of God. We're not saved because of who we are. We're not saved because of what we do. We're saved because it's God's gift to us. Acts 16, 31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. That's not saying just because you get saved, your whole family's going to get saved. It's saying they have a pretty good chance. (laughs) If you're standing up for Christ in your household, you're teaching your kids the things of God. More than likely, God will touch their heart. They'll come to Christ. 1 John 5.12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's eternal life. I mean, the bottom line is that we can say anything that we want to. But until we have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are still bound for hell. But when the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, it instantly makes you pleasing to a holy God. And we're accepted by a holy God into his presence based on our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the last thing there, they boasted in their leadership. Because they had the spiritual lineage, because they had the law, because they had this special relationship with God, they felt that they were superior to everyone. And it plays out there in verses 19 and 20. It says, If you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, 
an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. See, they believed all that. They believed that God entrusted that to them, and they studied the law, and you could ask them any question probably, and they'd get it right. But it missed their heart. It was just in their head. They felt it was their responsibility to show everyone else the way according to their own religiosity. Somehow, when they did that, they lost their own way. They lost the way of God. They didn't even know who God was when he was standing before them. They put him on a cross. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23, verse 15. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. I mean, if you were going to sum up in one word this text that we looked at so far, it's hypocrites. That's what he's pointing them to be. He says, For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte or a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, you're not helping anybody here. You're just encouraging people to become more religious. And they're just going to get more condemnation from God. We see that played out today in our churches. A religious person will try to force everyone to conform to their way. If they don't act like them, if they don't dress like them, if they don't talk like them, well, then they must be lost. They're on their way to hell. I went to a church one time where literally that was played out from the pastor down to the deacons to everybody in the church. They all dressed like him. They talked like him. They wore the same glasses he did. Very legalistic environment. And it was deadly in the end because the whole time, this guy was just playing a game. So legalistic, he couldn't see his own errors. Church came to find out he had a secret little door. He used to frequent his secretary, visit her. Committed adultery. The whole time he's leading this congregation, saying that he's this spiritual giant. That's sickening. But that's what legalism does to people. The person who tries to make everyone conform to his or her standard is not pleasing God. Because they probably don't know God to begin with. See, our duty as Christians is not to point out who needs their hair cut. Or what kind of dress they should wear. Or how they should worship God. Our duty is what? Point them to the Savior. That's what we're called to do. He'll take care of the rest. If they come to Jesus and he saves them, he can make them what he wants them to be. And that will be in accord with his word. I'm not saying we don't speak out on certain issues of morality and certain things like that that our culture is dictating to us. I'm not saying that. But those things are not an issue of salvation. The thing that matters is what are you doing with Christ? What are you doing with God's Son? There's only one thing that saved people back in Jesus' day. There's only one thing that can save us here today, and that's faith. It's having faith in the work of Christ and not our own work. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would console our hearts as we're confronted with our own self-righteousness at times. Lord, myself, I, as I studied this past week, Lord, it was convicted in so many different areas. That, Lord, sometimes my judgmental attitude is 
not in the spirit, but it's in the flesh. And it is based on legalistic mindset, not a spiritual mindset. And Father, we ask when those times, when you bring those times to our remembrance, that we would confess those and that we would seek to worship you in spirit and truth each and every day. Lord, there's a word out there that's in a world of hurt and it's going to hell in a handbasket. And Lord, we have what could possibly be their answer. And Father, we should at least make a, even if it's a feeble attempt, to reach out of these four walls and to present the gospel in a biblical way that people will be convicted of their sin and drawn to the Savior. Lord, I pray that Christ would be exalted, that Christ, the name of Christ would be lifted up here in this place. And not just here on Sunday, but Father, I pray that we would be on our guard as we leave here as members of this church, as members of your body, as Christians in this world, that we would live lives that are exemplary of our calling. That we would not have a double life. That, Father, we would dust our Bibles off during the week and seek to fellowship with other believers during the week. That you would put that desire in our heart. That it would become a priority. That we would desire to see lives transformed for the cause of Christ whether it's in Sunday school or VBS or Bible study or an outreach at work that we might have in mind. Lord, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that we'd be able to take this truth to a lost and dying world, that we would see many come to Christ. And Father, we pray today that if there's someone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would allow that call upon their life to be effective. That, Father, that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me to see this truth that was presented here this morning. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.